Wild in the City, exploring how a deeper connection with nature helps an urban city thrive. Hi, I'm Jim Newberry. And I'm Janet Wells. We're with Environment Sandy Springs, and we're your neighbors. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Doug Tallamy. He is professor of entomology at the University of Delaware. Doug is a strong voice for our natural world and how to save it for a change. He has written several books over 100 research publications, and his recent book, Bringing Nature Home, is a tour de force of what we can do to save the natural world and thus save ourselves. He also has a website called Homegrown National Parks. Doug, welcome to our podcast. It is a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Um, Growing up in the 50s, and I did, There was a commercial for Orkin that said, the only good bug is a dead bug. You said life depends on insects. All insects? (laughs) Most insects. Most insects. Most most by far. I mean, there are annoying insects, for sure. There are insects that bite us. There are insects that transmit diseases. There are insects that eat our crops. But 99.999% of the or three to four million species of insects out there are running the ecosystems that support us. So, um, you know, life is full of trade-offs and having to deal with some of the annoying insects. If we get rid of all the insects, we've gotten rid of ourselves. So Orkin, Orkin was not, not being accurate there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So tell me how you uh, ended up teaching entomology. I was a biology major in college, Allegheny College, and uh, I took a course in entomology from a man named Dr. Bugby. <laughs> if you're going to take a course in entomology, you should take it from Dr. Bugby. <clears throat> a really interesting guy. And uh, so I ended up specializing in entomology, went to graduate school, uh, got my, my what did I do? I got my master's at Rutgers, my PhD at University of Maryland, both in entomology. But the emphasis really was on behavior and ecology. But I was lucky enough to get a job at the University of Delaware. I've had one job interview in my life, and I was happy that turned out well because I'm still there. <laughs> That's amazing. How long have you been there? 42 years. 42 years. It's a marriage. Congratulations. Yes. Well, I think we're in a crisis. Uh, In fact, they're not calling it climate change anymore, but climate crisis, a nature crisis. And yet you're proposing ways to turn it around. So what is the key issue in turning this ocean liner around besides reductions in fossil fuels and carbon monoxide emissions? Yeah, well, we have two crises. We've got climate crisis, but we also have a biodiversity crisis. Uh, And using plants... Uh, better than we use them right now is a solution to both of them. Um, So a third of the carbon that is in the atmosphere right now has come from us chopping down our forests and and removing plants from the planet. All those plants are built out of carbon and that, you know, it volatilizes and goes up into the atmosphere. So it's not the entire problem, but it's a substantial part of it. If we put those plants back, we can pull a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, And one good thing about plants is once they're planted, 
not only do they build their tissues out of carbon that they get from carbon dioxide, but they also pump carbon into the ground through their root systems, which is why our soils are brown or black. That's because of carbon that plant roots have deposited there over, over the eons. So the more plants we put in the ground, the more carbon we're actually storing in the ground. And once it's in the ground, it's stable for thousands of years, which is why a prairie you know, they have short plants. It doesn't look like it's storing much carbon. Actually stores almost as much carbon as a forest. I'll just expand a little bit here. We've got 44 million acres of lawn in this country. And unfortunately, lawn is the worst plant for sequestering carbon because its roots are very short. We mow it every week uh, and put carbon in the atmosphere with the mowers. And, but we also release all the carbon that it just fixed uh, by, by growing. So lawn is not the solution to our carbon waste. It's actually contributing to it. So reducing the amount of lawn is one key way to help climate change. Are national parks doing the job of keeping nature alive? Our parks and our preserves are doing the best they can, but they're too small and they're too isolated and they're too few. We have parks and we have preserves, but we're also in the sixth great extinction event that the earth has ever experienced, which means we've got to start practicing conservation outside of parks and preserves. And every bit of conservation we do outside of parks and preserves is going to help conservation inside those parks and preserves. But that means we've got to do conservation on private property. Is that what you mean by homegrown national parks? What do you mean by that? Yeah, more, more or less. Um, I came up with that idea when I heard the statistic that we had 40 million acres of, of lawn, which is an area the size of New England. And I said, well, gee, what happens if we cut that area of lawn in half? That would give us 20 million acres that we could put towards conservation right at home. And I said, well, gee, we could create a new national park right at home. How big is 20 million acres? And I started adding up all the major parks. 20 million acres is bigger than all of them put together. So I said, okay, let's let's make homegrown national park. And it's just an effort to, to get the 135 million acres of residential landscapes to be more ecologically productive. And it also enlists an army of private landowners. There's millions of us out there that can contribute to conservation just by focusing on what's happening in our yards. So um, how can we live on the land without spoiling it, especially in an urban area that's continuing to grow rapidly? Well, one thing we have to recognize is that the planet is not growing rapidly. So the, the perpetual growth model isn't going to work. Um, it's, uh, we have to have limits on growth. I know nobody wants to hear that, particularly economists. But uh, the more we, we grow, in other words, the more we expand our, our human footprint, the more we are taking away from the ecosystems that support us. And there's going to be a tipping point where we take so much away that they actually collapse. And that's, you know, we don't want to get there. Uh, so we have to curb growth, actually. Um, but the idea that humans and nature cannot coexist is one of the biggest problems we have. So we design our landscapes and wherever we are in a way that totally expels nature. Uh, and, and, you know, nature is going to be happy someplace else. There is no someplace else anymore in most places. So, so we can solve a lot of these problems by learning how to coexist with nature. We can coexist by na with nature by choosing the plants that support it, by having more of them. We talked about that lawn. That's not supporting nature. That's not supporting any pollinators. It's not supporting the food web not passing on ener any energy, it's wrecking our watersheds, and it's not sequestering carbon. So almost any other plant is going to do a better job at supporting nature than, than our lawns. So if you plant an oak tree in your yard, 
that is the best plant you can choose in terms of supporting nature. It supports, in the mid-Atlantic states, it supports 557 species of caterpillars, which is 557 species of bird food. So then you have enough birds or enough food to, to have a chickadee breeding in your, in your yard. If you plant a crepe myrtle, it doesn't make any caterpillars. So you've got a pretty plant there, but it's not supporting the food web. So plant choice becomes a really important way in, in terms of supporting the nature around you. So oaks are the keystone tree. Well, they're one of the keystone trees. They are the best keystone trees. But native cherries are very good. Native willows are very good. Native birches are good. As you move a little farther west, cottonwoods are, are very good. So there's more than, more than one keystone tree. It's just that oaks, when you rank them, they're the best. Well, what do you mean by keystone tree? Okay, uh, picture the Roman arch. The stone in the middle of that arch is called the keystone. And if you take that stone out of the arch, the arch collapses. Well, if you take keystone trees or keystone plants out of your local food web, the food web collapses because those are the plants that are making most of the food. Those are the plants that are producing most of the insects that everything else needs. Plants, of course, are, are making they're, they're making the food that support animals. If you don't get that food to the animals, you don't have any animals. And this is the problem with native versus non-native plants. Non-native plants make a lot of food, but they don't pass it on. Our animals can't eat them. So we have pretty plants in our landscape, but the, the food web collapses because the food is not being passed on. So how do we know uh, what plants to add that support caterpillars in our area? Well, you go to the National Wildlife Federation website, uh, Native Plant Finder, put in your zip code, and the best plants for your county will pop up, the best, best woody plants and the best herbaceous plants. Something that drives me crazy is taking a walk in my neighborhood and seeing these signs that the lawns have been sprayed and uh, to kill mosquitoes so that you can enjoy your afternoon. And I want to say, and it also kills the bees and the butterflies. I want to write all over those things. But is there a safe way to kill mosquitoes? Yes, there is. Uh, it's called mosquito dunks. The problem with trying to kill mosquitoes in the adult stage is that you never get enough of them. You have to kill 90% of them to get good control. And these mosquito fogging companies only get between 10 and 50%. So they never get good control. So they have to keep coming back. You have to keep paying them. And in the meantime, they're killing the monarchs. They're killing all of the, the bees that we're trying to uh, support. They kill all of the insects except their target. So the best way to control mosquitoes is, is uh, through biological control uh, with a product called mosquito dunks. You get a bucket and you fill it full of water and you put in a handful of straw or hay or maybe just dead grass and put it out in the sun for a couple of days. That will build up the population of diatoms and algae. And that is what mosquito larvae eat. So that becomes an irresistible brew to any female mosquito in your yard. She'll lay her eggs in that bucket. Then you go to the hardware store and you buy a sheet of mosquito dunks. It costs about $12. And when those eggs hatch and you got all the little wriggly mosquitoes in there, you throw in a mosquito dunk. Uh, that's Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a natural bacterium that only kills aquatic diptera. And the only aquatic diptera, a diptera is a fly. The only aquatic dipterin in your bucket is mosquito larva. So it's targeted. You're only killing what you want to kill. Um, it's a bait. So they come to you. 
But the big benefit is it's cheap. If everybody did it, it really would control mosquitoes, and it doesn't kill anything else. How big an area does it cover? Well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Have to experiment. It probably depends. It depends on how rich you made your bucket, how big your bucket is, how many mosquitoes you have in your in your yard. Yeah, and if um, there's a hole, if you have in a the big bucket. yard, get two or three buckets. Yeah, it's a good question, but I really don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna try it. <laughs> uh, are there keystone plants that besides trees, besides? Yes, yes. Um, so herbaceous plants like uh, goldenrod, and particularly in the east, goldenrod is one of the top keystone plants in two ways. It not only does it support the most caterpillars, it also supports the most specialist bees. You know, we have about 4,000 species of bees and over a third of them can only reproduce on the pollen of particular plants. And goldenrod supports, depends on where you are, supports, you know, in the teens, 15, 16 species of, of specialist bees. If you combine goldenrod with native asters and native sunflowers, there are all the sunflowers are native. Um, you can you can get up to 40 species of bees in your yard, native bees, that wouldn't be there without those plants. Gosh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but in Georgia, 91% of all the land in the state is privately owned. And so I was wondering, what are some of the best ways to motivate private landowners to start making a difference? Well, you know, some of the headlines are motivating people when they hear that we've lost 3 billion breeding birds in the last 50 years, when they heard that the UN predicts we're gonna lose a million species in the next 20 years, um, when they hear that we've got global insect decline, people are caring more about this than I thought they would. The problem is they, they all feel powerless. They feel like, you know, they, there's nothing they can do. So my message is there's plenty they can do, and they can do it right on their property. It will make a difference. They will be able to see life come back to their yard by reducing the lawn, firing Mosquito Joe, you know, changing their light bulbs, making them yellow lights instead of white bulbs. That, that doesn't attract insects at night. There's lots of things they can do. Plant that oak tree that really will revitalize their, their yard. And then they, you know, then they feel like they're they're contributing because they are contributing. They really are increasing the biodiversity right where they live. Now, that list you just went through, is that available somewhere? Is that? Yeah, it's in my books. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Is, it, is it on your website? Is it on homegrown national it, parks? Website? It is on the website. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. So the difficulty I find is changing mindsets. You know, like you said, how we're talking about how do we motivate our neighbors to be neighborly to wildlife. But have you found any other things effective? What methods have been most widely adopted? Um, you know, we're trying to change the culture. And it's really, people worry about uh, lowering their property value. They worry about offending their, their neighbors. The standard landscape right now is a huge lawn with just a few plants, and those plants are all from China. So we're trying to change that and show that you actually can landscape with more plants. They don't have to be from China. Your neighbors won't even know it because you're going to use what we call cues for care. Notice I say reduce the lawn. I don't say get rid of lawn. Lawn is the best cue for care that we have. It's the perfect plant to walk on without killing it. 
So wherever you walk in your yard, most people aren't in their yards at all, but if you walk there, that's where lawn should be. You should use lawn uh, to outline your, your border, your driveway and your, your sidewalks to border your flower beds. What we're really talking about is just having more plants in your yard, but the lawn you keep is going to be mowed. It's going to be manicured. You're going to fit right in with the, the culture of your neighbors. Uh, and nobody's going to have a problem with that because that shows that that you're not abandoning the standard. You're embracing it. You're just changing it a little bit. How can cities be persuaded to create programs to assist private landowners in preserving, conserving, restoring our nature, uh, our natural resources? You know, more and more of them are. More and more there are, are, are instituting programs that promote biodiversity uh, at the entire state level. Minnesota, for example, has a cost-sharing program, which is encouraging homeowners to reduce or replace their lawn with appropriate Minnesota prairie plants. Um, Pennsylvania has a similar lawn reduction program. They're, they're paying, you know, people to do it. The object is to protect the watershed. Now, lawn destroys watersheds, and they want to protect the Susquehanna River watershed. There's an island off of Florida that is paying homeowners to allow burrowing owls to burrow in the front yard. It's a it's a listed species. It's an endangered species. Uh, so it's I think that's the way the Endangered Species Act should have been written with carrots rather than sticks. If you have an endangered species on your property, we're going to pay you to take care of it rather than fine you if you use your property. Then everybody would want one. It's it's incentives and financial incentives work really well. We could turn this around overnight if we change the tax structure. You know, in, in California, you get a $3 per square foot rebate for every square foot of lawn you, you replace with a Xeric planning because they don't have the water for lawn. So, so rather than fine people for having lawn, they're paying them to get rid of it, and everybody's adopting it, everybody except Kim Kardashian. <laughs> well, where are they getting Who is the worst water waster in this state? <laughs> really? Seriously? Really? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, where is the money coming from? They're paying them with what? I don't know where the money's coming from, but it's a it's a public good. This is a public service to have enough water to 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 drink. Um, to have functioning ecosystems is something that helps everybody. We can find the money. Look at what we you know, if we took half the money that we spent on any election, we could we could save all the ecosystems in the world. Yes to it's that. Priority. Well well said. It's priorities. <laughs> yes. How, how do we reach um, those in our community who are unaware of the biodiversity crisis. I, I'm surprised that there are people who are unaware of it, but uh, how do we reach them? That is the major challenge. That was one of the major reasons we started Homegrown National Park. The object is, is to not pat people who already know this on the back, but to reach, we call them the, the non-choir, to use social media to reach people who who have no idea that they're the future of conservation. And there's millions of them. There's millions of them. Uh, so, yeah, social media is a wonderful way to, to do it. Um, it's why I write the books. It's why I do these podcasts. It's why I give talks. Uh, I am reaching a lot of people that that uh, haven't heard of it. But there's many more. You know, we're, 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 we're talking about making documentaries. People don't read anymore, but they do watch. So that will help. Making it part of the national conversation is is the way to do it. How to reach the the unreachable is what it seems like, but I, I like the fact that um, that you're about educating everybody. You're you're willing to do go from podcast to podcast apparently, 
And I feel like that that's just what we've got to do. Start talking. I want to educate everybody because it's everybody's responsibility to take care of the planet. And it's everybody's responsibility because everybody needs a healthy planet. Everybody needs functioning ecosystems. You know, right now we've got a system where you've got a few uh, conservation biologists and a few ecologists and their job is to take care of the earth. Everybody else seems to have a green light to wreck it. That makes no sense at all because everybody needs it. So why doesn't everybody share that responsibility of taking care of it? They don't because nobody told them they should. <laughs> we weren't trained to do that. So that's what we're trying to do is to say, nope, it's your responsibility. One of my favorite sayings is there is no planet B. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, that, that's pretty good, Jim. That, that's pretty good. So what's been the most encouraging thing you have had happen since you have started this path? What what have you had some things really encourage you to keep going? Yeah. Well, you know what? I wrote it. Bringing Nature Home. I wrote Bringing Nature Home, but I didn't think anybody would read it. And I thought my life would go back to normal. But I was wrong. People did read it. They were excited about it. And and the whole thing is, has blossomed from there. It was all about timing. And that was just an accident. You know, Sarah Stein wrote Noah's Garden. I don't know, 2005 or something. And she had all, all the same concepts. She didn't, she didn't know the science behind it, but she said, she said pretty much the same things I said, but people weren't ready for it. It was a popular book, but it didn't, it didn't go crazy the way uh, some of the things I've written have gone just because we weren't quite there yet from, from at, a, at a society's level, but we are there now. People want solutions. They're eager to help. They just don't know what to do. And I'm just saying, look, it's easy. These are the things you should do. Um, and that has been what's most encouraging. Are young people our saviors? I mean, are they going to come to our rescue here? You're teaching. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we all it's have to get involved. The, it is not the young people. You know who it is? It's the retired people because they have the time and the money to do it. The young people, yes, they're the next generation. And sure, they're going to help a whole bunch. And we have to teach them that this is their responsibility. But we cannot wait another generation. It is it is the baby boomers. <laughs> so, <laughs> we have to step up and do it. And you know what they are. They really are. Yeah, so much. There's so much to do. There's just every time you turn around, like grasslands and uh, water tables and everything. There's just so much to do. But I think this is the most doable I've heard of is to I, I think I, I attended your seminar uh, March the 29th this year. I felt hope. I felt encouraged. You said one tenth of an acre was enough. Am I right about that? Did you say that? That's right. One tenth of an acre in the middle of Chicago. <laughs> Got 124 bird species using that one tenth of an acre with the right plants. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners? Well, I always, I always close by trying to emphasize that personal responsibility. A brand new concept. Yes, you who know nothing about, about conservation, you're the future of conservation. So uh, think about changing the way you, you landscape. Think about, about the, your plant choice, the number of plants you have in your, your uh, property. It'll make a huge difference. So really the place to start is planting native plants and removing invasives which would include your lawn. Yeah, that's one thing. <laughs> but reducing the lawn. We're going to use that lawn as a cue for care. But but yes, um, that is the place to start. 
And and us old folks, and I not talking about Jim, of course, but uh, we really miss lightning bugs, June bugs, yeah. you know. And I I did not realize that a lightning bug was really a beetle, and and uh, that when you have a lawn and you mow it and the you you scrape up all the leaves and you pile them up and burn them up or whatever you do with them, stick them in bags that the the beetle can't bore in to the soft earth. It can't do it. Well, it, it's a beetle, and as larvae, they are predators in leaf litter. So when you get rid of your leaf litter, you've gotten rid of your lightning bugs. And it doesn't mean you're going to have leaf litter on the lawn that you have, but you can have it. You should have it in your beds. Every tree should have a big bed underneath it, and the basis of that bed should be leaf litter, and then you plant on top of that. You won't even see the leaves. That's what the lightning bugs need and of course you can't have you can't have mosquito joe spraying and you can't have a, a lawn service that puts down toxins you have to have a pesticide free free yard which of course is much healthier for you too you don't want to live in an envelope of pesticides that's that's not helping us believe me no. even the roses and those you know how pests come after roses and things like that you would let them just naturally figure it out or use something natural like I've heard of soaps you can use on rose bushes. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. Roses aren't natural either. They're, you know, those are ornaments from someplace else. So uh, their big problem for roses is Japanese beetles. You know what I did? I grew up in the 50s too. And my mother gave us a jar and we'd go out and we'd tap those beetles into the jar. We can do that too. We can still do that. Yeah, we can do that. There are, there are pest controls for sure. But um, we want to use as, as little insecticide as possible. Mm-hmm. And and what else can we do? Uh, I briefly mentioned changing your, your outdoor light bulbs. The best thing to do is turn them off. We're, we're addicted to lighting up the sky at night for no reason. But um, if you don't want to do that, you can either put a motion sensor on your, your uh, outdoor light so it only turns on when the bad man comes, or take the white bulb out of that that light and put in a yellow bulb because yellow bulbs do not attract nocturnal insects, particularly the moths that make the caterpillars that run the food web. Um, so that's an easy thing to do. Anybody can do it and it will help, you know, it'll help a lot. Well, we're doing really well now. I guess that uh, you could say, or would you say that uh, all bugs are good bugs? <laughs> I come close to that. I come close to that. I know. I, you know, I, many of the Many of the mosquitoes we have here are invasive species themselves. Aedes aegypti, where do you think that's from? The Asian tiger mosquito, we don't need them. (laughs) They're just big problems. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. So, well, it has been a joy to have you on our program. Thank you so much for being with us. And um, I hope you continue to do this good work. And and what I just love so much about your work is the, the hope that it brings. Just want to say, I really appreciate you. Okay, good. I appreciate it. Thanks for what you're doing as well. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Environment Sandy Springs. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode wherever you get your podcast or see it on our website, environment-sandysprings.org. Until Until next time, cheers. cheers!